This morning our scripture reading comes from the 23rd Psalm. Listen for God to speak to you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. This week, as I read over this psalm, I was reflecting on how some literature that's familiar becomes old and stale and others remains fresh and relevant. I read over this psalm, which I've heard so many times, and wondered what it means most to me. What's my first impression of it? To me, it still seems relevant, maybe because I read it with so many families during funerals. I think of it as a powerful psalm that brings peace and comfort to people. And yet, as I read over it and over it this week, in preparation for our time here, I realized that the author appears to be exhausted, maybe because he's facing evil and darkness, enemies and want. Those are the things he lists as needing help, that he needs help from God with these things, even though I think most of us think about it as peace and solace accomplished. As I looked at it this week, I thought the author is still seeking peace, is still seeking some comfort and some help from the Lord, it's not quite there yet. He's not quite feeling it's all accomplished as he's writing, I think. He's writing about real struggles, I believe. Things that have really happened in his life, circumstances that he is dealing with. And he touches on a wide range of issues that all of us deal with from time to time. I thought about people I've talked to during the pandemic so many saying they are exhausted, especially families with young children who are schooling them in the home and probably both parents working, often both of them from the home. And all the changes that has meant to families and how exhausting trying to stay up in touch with all the homework and work life and meals and all the things that seem to be so very different now. And yet I also talk to people who feel a sense of exhaustion with the pandemic, who live alone, but they're feeling isolated and the loneliness begins to build and it too can wear a person out. And I've heard from people, as Reverend Venable mentioned in her prayer, the election, people who during this election cycle are feeling exhausted by everything that has happened and all the rhetoric they are hearing and some even feeling like there are evil people at work trying to destroy the democratic process. And that too is a real need that people are feeling. Of course, some of us feel like somebody doesn't like us and that may be true and it's easy if someone expresses that to us or through someone else to us that we begin to think of them as an enemy that is attacking us. The psalmist talks about that as well. I think about those who've been impacted the most 
by the decline in the economy during the pandemic who have lost a job or maybe even lost a house or lost medical insurance or are facing bankruptcy. And surely they're feeling a sense of desperation and need and want. Those most vulnerable in our society who are on the edge of homelessness or have slipped into homelessness or are dealing with active mental illness, surely they know uncertainty and want and desire some help from God. The psalmist, I think, touches on all these and writes in such a concise and yet such a universal way that it can speak to all of us. Cannot any of us, all of us, read this and the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. All of us, I think, can take comfort from that and seek solace and understand the psalmist yearning to have this sense of God's presence with him and guiding him. One of the Bible commentators I read said that verse that we read in verse 3 as he restores my soul is really a beautiful phrase, but not as accurate as what he says the Hebrew actually says, which is brings my life back. Robert Alter says in the Hebrew, the image is one who is down to the last breath. I mean, on the edge of death and God revives or restores the person's breath. He says this is a dramatic phrase of someone who's in a desperate circumstance who has felt God come and rescue him. Well, as you read through the psalm, the subject is God throughout and what God does for us. But there's more here than just the message that God is with us. There's more than just the sense that God can help us. I believe the psalm at a deeper level is saying that the key to this sense of peace or wholeness that the author desires is not based on circumstances that the author is going through or any one of us might be going through. I think that's what I hear most people focusing on these days, and especially when they struggle is, I can't get a break. The circumstances of my life are such that I need help. The psalmist is saying that's the wrong focus, that what we mostly complain about takes our focus in the wrong direction. The psalmist, I think, is saying here that our focus should be on God, that we should keep our eyes focused on God and we should be attending to our relationship with God and thinking more about that than the circumstances of our lives. In other words, I believe the psalmist is saying it's not the circumstances. It is our relationship with God that matters most in our lives. And the conclusion of the psalmist and I don't know if you can get here with me but I think this is where the psalmist is taking us is that this relationship with God that is the thing that brings us a sense of peace or wholeness despite whatever circumstances might be circling around us Reverend Terry McDaniel Ott is a chaplain she is a white woman 
She writes about her relationship with her father. In short, she says it is contentious. She said she had written a new book she was so excited about. It's about white privilege, 10 risks privileged people should take. She called her dad to share the news that it was going to be published. And he said, you know, a book with a title like that, that's not one I would buy. That's nothing I would read. And then she said, she kind of lost it and said, well, it's not for you anyway. It's not for people who voted for Trump. It's for people who want to do good and make a difference in the world. She said she hung up in a huff. And it was terrible to feel the brokenness and the contentiousness that she had with her dad was a terrible feeling. She was trying to figure out what had happened. She loved her dad. She knew her dad loved her. And yet they were at such odds in this season that we're living through. But she said it didn't just start with the telephone call. She said it reminded her of a dinner they had had a few months ago before the pandemic. The whole family was together and she and her father were having another political discussion. And she said, I thought I was responding with strength and clarity until my eight year old daughter said out loud, why is mommy screaming at grandpa? And then she said, I knew I was not in the right place. And then she said it happened again on the phone call. And she said, as I thought about it and pondered it, I thought I've got to do better. I think I can do better. She said she approached her father to say, could we try again? She said we live in different states, so it was going to be a phone call. But her dad said, okay, he was willing to try. So she says before she called him, she did some prayer and meditation, took some deep breaths, centered herself in God, calmed herself down, and then called her dad. She said, I started with a question. I asked him, where did you first hear of white privilege? He said, on the news. She began to tell him about what she had read, how this had been researched and studied and written about in education and academic circles for some time now. It wasn't just a new pop phrase. Well, he didn't understand it that way. What he heard was on the news. He says, it just sounds like to me that it's a bunch of people having to apologize for being white. She said, maybe I can define this. She, he said, well, I don't even think it really exists. He said, oh, there's privilege, but I don't think it's tied to race. And she said, what if I define it? She said she defined privilege as an unearned advantage, an unearned advantage advantage her dad said he could understand that he kind of liked that he said he preferred the word advantage over privilege and all of a sudden they had found some common ground do you hear it as they talked and listened and asked questions instead of attacking they found some common ground but she said her dad went on to talk about the american dream and how important that was to the fabric of our country. And everybody has an opportunity to live the dream of upward mobility and fulfilling one's calling and using one's gifts. She said, I responded with, well, yes, it does help us dream of a better future. But not everybody has the same opportunity. 
we have to take the history of racism in our country into account because it makes a real difference about who gets to live this American dream. Well, he said, it just feels like to me every time I hear someone talking about white privilege that it's an excuse for other people who are lazy or who are not trying. He says it really, I tell you, he said it, it feels like a slap in the face to everything I've worked for in my life. And Terry says, you know, when he said that, it dawned on her that she really didn't know very much about his career and what he had done as a banker. And he began to tell her about that, how he was living in Detroit when there were race riots years ago. And afterwards, his bank had a meeting to talk about how they could help. And they got involved in loans for businesses of ethnic minority people and loans for housing. And they really began to develop a whole division of people who were specializing in those areas. And then they began to understand they needed to have ethnic minority people in their midst on the staff. And so they proactively began to recruit and hire people to diversify the workers at the bank and the officers at the bank. She says, I listened to that. I began to understand my father better. She said, I want him in the conversation. We don't always agree. She said, let me be clear. We don't have the same position on many things. But she says, I listened better and heard his story in a fuller way and why he comes at these issues the way that he does I realize we can all benefit from his experience. She said, I realize I've read our history, but he's lived it. She said, when we finished the conversation that day and hung up, I felt so much better. I hadn't gotten in a huff. I hadn't hung up. I hadn't screamed. We hadn't been angry at each other. We had really had a conversation and she said, certainly, I understand my father better, and I think he understands me better. She said, oh, I've read more books about racism and anti-racism and all that kind of thing. But his lived experience is rich and informs him and can inform the discussion. When she was reflecting after the call, she wrote this. My dad and I share an ethic of love, and I'm a minister because my mom and dad raised me in a church that taught me that loving God meant loving one's neighbor. And I have to remember I am who I am because of who they were and how they raised me. Now, what I want us to notice is this same external circumstances, yet now refreshing tone in their relationship. I think this story that Terry tells gives us a glimpse of what happens when we remember that our best relationships are built on the love of God. And when we put God's love at the center of who we are and how we relate to one another, that it puts us on a different footing. The psalmist, I think, is not saying that he knows the path and he knows where he's going, only that he knows that God can lead him. 
I don't think he's saying he'll never experience exhaustion again. But I think he's saying he's going to trust God to refresh and restore his life or his soul. He's not saying that he never feels lost or afraid, but that he knows that he can focus on God and God's presence can bring him comfort. I don't think he's saying he will never feel attacked or disliked again, but that because he knows God and God's love for him, he can experience a sense of refreshment in his life, which leads him to proclaim in that sixth verse, I put this in your outline, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Again, it's not the circumstances will always be to our liking, but that God can always be our companion and our relationship with God can make all the difference. The good news here is that circumstances do not have to steal our zest for living or our love of life. Our circumstances don't have to distort us into people that we don't want to be, that we can focus on God. No matter what we're facing, whatever circumstances we are living in. Because when our lives are deeply grounded in God's presence with us and God's love for us, then that determines the tenor of our living. That's what can bring us a sense of peace and wholeness that we read about in this psalm. The psalm often help us express faith when our faith is faltering when we're having trouble finding the words when we're having trouble expressing our faith or claiming our faith we can turn to the psalms and read the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters he restores my soul the psalmist sometimes speak for us when we cannot find the words and draw us back toward God. So if you're feeling the grief of losing something or the exhaustion of living through all that we're experiencing, let me recommend you go to the psalms and read them again. And of course, the community of faith can read them for us and surround us with love. We do this every Sunday morning. Now, these days, we have to imagine these 2,000 of us that are gathering together. But as I was finishing the sermon, I was reminded of when my father died. I was only 24 years old. It was a difficult experience. I felt like I was pretty much grown up and on my own until his death. And then I realized he was always my backup plan. He was much of my confidence, and now he was gone. We went back to my home church in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, the first Methodist church there where my dad had grown up, where I had been raised, walking into that sanctuary, seeing people that had helped shape my faith, hearing the organ play and the songs being sung. It allowed my grief to pour out, and I was a mess. And when I couldn't read these words, the community of faith read them for me and affirmed my faith for me and helped me navigate that most difficult experience of death. I 
think of it in the King James Version so often. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.